welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 34, recorded on August 9th, 2019. Party QL with the Cloud Pod. Good evening, guys. How's it going, Peter? Hey, going well. How's your uh, evening today? Oh, man. Busy week. Drinking coffee right now. <laughs> yes. yes, it's been a very busy week. How about you, Jonathan? Uh, the thought of drinking anything right now is pretty bad after the night out with Ryan last night. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes, friend of the show, Ryan, and uh, Jonathan and I uh, went out last night. That was a rough, uh, rough evening. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I have a guest for you guys this week. Uh, I want to introduce uh, Josh Stella, uh, who's here. And you, you want to introduce yourself, Josh? Yeah, my name is Josh Stella. I'm uh, the co-founder and chief technology officer for Fugue. Um, and prior to that, I was a principal solutions architect at AWS, and I've been writing software and leading technology teams for longer than I'd care to relate. Awesome. Well, we're <laughs> super happy to have you here on the show this week. So we'll, uh, we'll talk all about Fugue and, and what you guys are doing over there as we uh, go through the show today. So Cool. Good to be here. So last week, uh, we had talked about the Bahrain AWS region, and we didn't have pricing. So the pricing has now come out. Uh, and so I ran a couple analysis here. The M5 X large uh, is one hundred and forty dollars and sixteen cents in the Oregon region, and it'll cost you a cool one hundred and seventy-one dollars and fifty-five cents a month uh, in Bahrain. And the C five X large is about one hundred twenty-four dollars uh, in Oregon, and it costs you about one hundred fifty-four in Bahrain. So about a thirty-dollar premium uh, over the U.S. regions to go to the Bahrain Middle East. Which apparently, I also heard um, the Bahrain currency is actually one of the most valuable uh, currency notes in the world. So. Uh, it makes sense why this is a little bit expensive compared to other regions. So do, do keep that in mind as you guys are looking at uh, Middle Eastern region deployments uh, on AWS. One of the reasons why we wanted Josh on today was he wrote a fantastic blog post uh, about Capital One. And so last week we talked about uh, the Capital One breach exposing 106 million records, uh, PII information, out to the world. And a lot of developments have been happening in this space. But when we recorded last week, um, there was a lot of unknown questions. And so Josh has done a great job writing up um, his analysis from his security perspective of what might have happened and how this might have been uh, attacked and compromised in this way. So, Josh, maybe you want to walk us through your blog post a little bit. Yeah, sure thing. My blog post is based on uh, me reading the Department of Justice complaint primarily, which is the real source of facts for most of the analysis uh, of this attack, along with um, the apparent attacker's uh, social media posts, although I, I kind of went in that order. Um, so my theory, if you will, we don't, we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, hopefully someday we will. But my theory is that the attacker, I mean, we do know that she was scanning for vulnerabilities. And, and that's the kind of first point I want to make is <clears throat> in the old days, a lot of times attackers would really target organizations and then try to find vulnerabilities in those organizations. And that does still happen. But it's pretty clear uh, from the evidence we have to date that this was opportunistic. And, and that's important for folks to think about because the bad guys are out there scanning every IP address on the internet, according to a, a friend of mine who's deep in that space, multiple times a day looking for vulnerabilities. So this might have not been that sophisticated an attacker, but it looks like she found an entryway into their cloud infrastructure not by targeting Capital One, but by looking for open ports that shouldn't have been open and then saying, wow, this looks like a, a pretty tasty one. And so it really doesn't matter who you are. 
the bad guys are going to find you if you have things misconfigured. So we know from the DOJ complaint that there was an open firewall port. There was a misconfigured firewall, I should say. We don't know it was an open port, but I suspect it was. Uh, and from there, the attacker managed to uh, get inside the Cap1 infrastructure and start to uh, do a number of things. From the DOJ complaint, we know that she managed to list S3 buckets and then to, quote unquote, sync S3 buckets. So let's talk about these in order briefly. The list permissions on S3 are actually fairly dangerous. You should be concerned about this. Your production servers and, and workloads, generally speaking, shouldn't be able to list your S3 buckets uh, because that is like giving a phone directory to where your data lives. Uh, and then the sync command that's referred to in the G DOJ complaint is interesting too because sync on S3 is actually an AWS CLI command, but not an API. It's a convenience function of the CLI. So that plus a number of other factors makes me think what happened is she got in through an open door, a misconfigured firewall, managed to exploit likely an EC2 instance to get access to its metadata. She mentions in social media and in my blog, uh, I actually hadn't read that mention in her social media. I hadn't read that she had talked about this, but it just seemed logical to me uh, that she probably went and found a good IAM role with good permissions and did a role assumption. And in her, in her, in her social media, she actually says uh, doing a, uh, an assume role. So the chain of events is get in the door through the open firewall port, exploit an instance, get its metadata, possibly go shopping for an IAM role that had broader permissions to list S3 and sync S3 to her own environment. And I think what's interesting about this to me is there's really no, there, only one of these components is any kind of perimeter defense. Uh, any kind of perimeter defense would matter, which is that initial open firewall port or misconfigured firewall. A lot of analyses of this have assumed that the server she got into was a web application firewall, a WAF. I don't see a ton of evidence for that, that she used an IAM role with WAF in the title, but she talked about using a SIM role which means she could have just borrowed that set of credentials. So I, I think that the takeaways, there's a ton of specific takeaways on this, but the fundamental takeaway is that your cloud infrastructure is a, a system you have to look at as a whole from a security perspective. Don't think too much about perimeters. Think about not just defense in depth, but architectural security baked into every layer of the system. And be very cautious around things like uh, list, and similarly with IAM, the ability to list roles and list policies allows bad guys to go shopping in your infrastructure, uh, in that case for credentials, in the case of S3 with list, uh, for your data stores. It, it's a really interesting breach. Um, I'll also say uh, I, I came from AWS and I have very good friends at Capital One. And both of these organizations do a pretty phenomenal job. Uh, so I think uh, this is a case of, uh, you know, compute infrastructure, whether in the data center or the cloud, is always imperfect. And um, uh, this could kind of happen to anyone. And these are very smart people who, uh, uh, who were on the uh, unfortunate receiving end of this. So I don't know. Is that a decent summary?
Yeah, I think that's a great summary. You know, it's interesting you talked about the web application firewall portion of it, because that's actually the most interesting part to me, because if you've assigned that role to the EC2 host that maybe has a port open, as you speculate, you know, why is that role there? And I've actually been thinking more about it from the, if it is a web application firewall, um, you know, is the potential that that was misconfigured to actually pass the metadata service directly from, you know, because most web application firewalls, if you're using Nginx or using any other brand out there, they will just basically pass their reverse proxies with some smarts in them. And so if you accidentally misconfigured it to say, I want to forward the metadata service out to the internet, um, that would be a pretty pretty simple misconfiguration that would give you that role pretty quickly and also exploit the EC2. So that's how I've been sort of feeling about it. But um, you know, your logic on why you think it's this direction is also very interesting too. Either way, I think your perspective is really enlightening because I think um, I see a lot of people who, you know, they're, they're, they go by lease permission for the most part, but they really don't see a read-only credentials as a threat to anything. And oftentimes, um, over-provision that, um, that permission uh, just to make things easy. Like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just read-only. You can't do anything with that, so I'm not too worried about it. And I'll add that policy to pretty much all my IAM roles just so when I'm on that box, I could troubleshoot. Uh, and uh, now looking at it, it would be very, very, very difficult to just guess which roles you could try to assume security by obscurity that that step was just handed over for for free and now you've got whatever 20 or 50 or 100 roles to try instead of an infinite number of possible names uh, well yeah that and s3 too i mean apparently she breached 700 s3 buckets what's the chance of guessing one or five of those much less 700 yeah and knowing what's in them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I think that uh, the old notion in uh, kind of data center security of lateral movement um, is highly relevant here, but it's based on largely IAM permissions. And I think people get distracted or confused by the notion, uh, you know, the name of that service, identity and access management. They think of it more like, you know, my user credentials uh, than the actual secondary network by which your cloud infrastructure is connected. And, you know, people are still thinking from a security perspective in terms of TCP IP layer, you know, VPC flow logs and things like that. Well, that that doesn't come into play here. So you, you have to have a real systems architecture view of security and resilience of the system versus a kind of security analyst view. You know, the cloud is made of software. So only by employing a software engineering approach can we actually make it secure and resilient. It's a very interesting uh, perspective on it. It definitely shows you that these tools are tremendously powerful and you have to think through a lot more beyond just the simple like read-onlys, like Peter mentioned, is good enough. It, it's not in many times, and you need to really think this through from a least privileged perspective. And that's that's really the biggest the biggest oops in the whole process is that, you know, what she did, the game part can be, you know, kind of excusable. There's always potential for these type of ports to be opened accidentally. But then, you know, you get into that first layer, and now all of a sudden you have this access to this role that's much bigger uh, with much more permissions and much more danger. And then that's not protected either. It just it continues to you know escalate very quickly to the point that you've now breached 106 million records. Um, so you know even the most simple security things should be definitely looked at and considered as you kind of move forward. I agree and I disagree. I th I think actually making sure your ports are properly configured if you have a, a good security uh, process and tool set. I mean everyone should have constant knowledge of, of which ports are open to the internet. Uh, and, and, and that's feasible to do. That's one of the things we do. Um, 
where what I find fascinating about this is the notion of um, uh, identity. Once you once you're inside that kind of uh, uh, you know defended perimeter, if you will, that identity becomes sort of its own network you can surf. And that many of the uh, uh, kinds of API calls that were almost certainly used in this, again, wouldn't show up in your you know traditional security monitoring, look for exfiltration of data across perimeters kinds of scenarios. These things have to be solved architecturally. And you know if you rewind, I don't know, ten or fifteen years uh, when uh, you know we were naive in the way that the world is now about cloud, about just the internet. Uh, it took years for uh, the market uh, of uh, software vendors uh, like us to uh, produce tools that become kind of standard tools for making sure uh, you're safe. And I think that we're in a similar place in terms of the evolution of cloud right now. That said, I think uh, cloud done right is far more secure than a data center. But the done right part is the tricky bit. Yeah, and I mean, we could still adapt our SIM tools. Maybe we're not doing looking at VPC flow logs, but maybe we're looking for anomalous API calls like describe calls on our IAM profiles. Uh, and then, you know, doing event correlation with those. I bet, I bet if we went back and looked at the CloudTrail logs, we would, we would see red flags all over the place that we potentially could have been uh, monitoring for and, and notifying on. That's an interesting point, and I think you're certainly right, but I'd propose that uh, that might be too little too late. The beauty of, of cloud, uh, the reason I went and founded a company is I realized some years ago that because the cloud is made of APIs, instead of people plugging wires into boxes on a data floor and entering records in a configuration management database that are always wrong or always contain errors, uh, because it's made of APIs, we can use software to fully understand the configuration state of the system. And this gets back to what I was saying about it being a software engineering approach and an architectural approach. So, you know, we've spent a ton of time, I've spent a, a good chunk of my life uh, working on how to predict what could go wrong rather than having to uh, look at the uh, vast noise to small signal in things like flow logs or API calls after the fact, uh, you know, uh, to, to discern what might have happened. I, I do think it's interesting, too, that over 100 days went by between the actual breach and anyone finding out about it. And I'd propose that we wouldn't even know about this if the attacker hadn't gone on to social media to get some notoriety for it. Uh, she went through Tor, through iPredator. I mean, it was a very well-conceived attack. And I think we only know about it because uh, somebody on one of those message boards, uh, I think it was a Slack channel in some group, uh, where she was bragging, uh, threw a flag. Well, where else is this happening? We, we really don't know because the tooling generally, uh, the traditional security tooling is just woefully inadequate to the problem space. Yeah, it's definitely um, interesting, you know, and, and I expect there will be a lot more tools focusing on use cases around how to prevent this kind of attack in the future. When you look at the different layers of this, you know, the misconfiguration of the port, the least privilege violation of the IAM, 
you also see that there's opportunities for Amazon to potentially make changes to how they do some of these things too, to make it harder for an attacker to come in? Or is this, is this by design and we really just need to be thinking about it more from making sure those layers and depth are there? I'm going to make a, 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 a public admission here. Um, when I first got a Unix box, and I'll date myself, in, in 1990, uh, a Sun workstation landed on my desk. And uh, I logged in as root, and I managed to copy the contents of a blank tape file into my kernel file because I didn't know what I was doing yet. The analogy here is that the cloud is extremely powerful. And so when you look at things like IAM and S3, there, there is an intrinsic tension between giving users lots of capabilities and protecting people from shooting themselves in the foot or more vital organs. Personally, as a, I'm a software developer, you know, software architect, I like power. I like the ability to be creative and innovate. And I know with that comes danger. And so uh, could AWS do one thing or another to make it more obvious when you're doing things wrong? I think they do a pretty decent job of that. Um, but I also think there's room for, you know, I don't mean to be just plugging here, but this is this is what I've been working on for the last number of years is giving people that insight into the kind of consequences of their decisions. So I think AWS and Azure and Google should keep giving us lots and lots of power over these systems. And uh, we should recognize that with that power comes danger. And also, frankly, uh, developers used to rely on the security organization to tell them where they were insecure. Well, now developers have to figure out how to do that on their own because they're moving too fast on cloud. Very, very true. People used to rely on security through obscurity quite a lot. And I think I, I wouldn't want people to think that by hiding lists of role names or lists of S3 buckets that they're in some way protecting themselves because I mean, you potentially could still guess those things. You could still brute force those things. But um, transparency, um, it kind of reminds me of the certificate transparency thing, you know, the, the Republic logs of every SSL certificate that's, that's been issued now from uh, DigiCert and VeriSign and most of those vendors. And so an attacker could potentially just trawl through those, um, those certificates being issued and look for S3 bucket names. And, you know, it gives them an instant pointer. But, I mean, it's a trade-off, though. Having access to the information is, is useful from a security perspective because now you can verify that a certificate was issued to the right person. But it's also, it also opens up a little, uh, a little hole there. Yeah, and I'm not really advocating relying on security through obscurity. But at the same time, um, I, I do think it's unwise to publish a directory of where all the goods are. Oh, sure thing. Um, so I, I think it's a combination. Um, and and when, you, when you think of, you know, the kind of fastest swimmer uh, sort of security, if you think about this uh, scenario where you've got somebody just like scanning as many IPs as they can for vulnerabilities... And then spending some amount of time, right? Bad guys have budgets too, whether they're in dollars or time, looking for things that, that do have that soft metal where they can make some progress. So I agree with you. We can't rely on that, but it's also not, not, a, not a good idea to advertise it. Yeah, definitely security and layers. I think security and layers is always the way to go, for sure. Do you think this is going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be lawsuits over this. Um, I've already seen some rumblings on the internet about potential class action suits. 
Um, and you know, there's also talk that Amazon might be a defendant in this as well. Do you think this will be potentially a very interesting bellwether for the shared security model as you know through the court system and how where that accountability lies for something like this uh, over time? It'd be interesting to see. Uh, Pensa, what are your thoughts there? Uh, well, I'm not a lawyer, um, <laughs> so so I, I don't have a, 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 a strong opinion about how this is going to play out from a kind of liability and legal perspective. I'm I'm watching like everyone else is. What I will say is that I I was uh, really unhappy to see this happen to Capital One because I'm a huge fan and as I said I have friends there. Uh, but I think it was a good thing for the cloud world to have the words cloud misconfiguration on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, because that was something people weren't really keyed in on. You know, security wasn't, I get, I talked to a lot of CISOs and they're just not thinking about this stuff. And it, according to Gartner is like the main attack vector to cloud. And it certainly is in my experience. So I, I can't really comment on like who's going to sue who and what will work and whether the shared security model will modify or if indemnification will get built into more contracts or any of that stuff. I mean, we'll, we'll wait and see. But I, I, I am now seeing in the market just, you know, the conversations I've had this week, it's raised the awareness that the configuration of cloud is actually a, a you know, the front lines and, and there is no perimeter it's the entire configuration of that cloud. So ho hopefully what we get from this is, um, um, you know, in the shared security model, AWS and Microsoft and Google did a really good job on their part. Customers do a mixed bag job on their part. Hopefully this raises that profile of what they need to do. Yeah, for sure. I think it, it's definitely going to be a, a big story. I mean, Amazon S3 buckets have been on the front page many times and that hasn't really moved the needle because the customers or the companies have done it haven't been considered to be you know, highly secure companies. And, you know, the fact that it is Capital One is such a huge profile customer for Amazon. You know, the CIO was on main stage at reInvent several years ago. I, I, this one is a big deal. The largest breach in history. It, everything about this is going to be front page news and going to be boardroom chatter and boardroom conversations with CEOs about what are you doing about preventing this. So it, it is definitely a great time from a security perspective to have a tool that helps solve these problems, I'm sure. And uh, we'll definitely be interested to see, you know, how this starts shifting some of the conversations around security in the cloud is, you know, is, is I agree with you, the, the front line is configuration and making sure the configuration is correct and, and secure. And then those guardrails help, you know, protect your environment as you continue to build out cloud services and you let your developers do what they want to do, which is innovate without restrictions. But you know, those guardrails help bring those restrictions back to place. And that's important. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll just make one more comment on that, which is as a developer, I don't really want guardrails. I want feedback in the same way my compiler gives me feedback as to what I'm doing right or wrong. And, uh, and I think that's a friendly, more developer centered way of doing this. And I think the future lies with developers. Uh, you know, when you think about the traditional, you know, ops and security teams, the developers have just like run ahead and that lets them do all this cool, crazy, innovative stuff that we love to do as developers, but it also carries a responsibility of not allowing security breaches. So. Understood completely. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, 
visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, we got to move on uh, to our long list of topics for this week. And uh, we're happy to have you here, Josh, as we go through. And you know, feel free to chime in on anything that sounds interesting. Uh, so the first one is a general news story. Uh, Cloudflare uh, has reportedly is going to go public in September. Uh, they have filed their S1. Their last round uh, valued them at about $3.2 billion in revenue. Um, although it was a bit of a bad week to announce this as uh, there was a lot of controversy over the weekend uh, as they terminated service for 8chan, uh, which was accused of uh, you know, channeling hate into the world in some different ways, which we won't talk about here. But uh, overall, Cloudflare was founded in 2009. Uh, this would be following the Fastly uh, IPO, which happened earlier in the year and uh, is a big deal for those using cloud uh, CDNs other than the main three. So uh, good news for those using Cloudflare uh, and something to be watching as it goes public in September. They're doing some innovative stuff outside of traditional CDNs too. Uh, you know, I, I love the uh, ability to do workers in WebAssembly, you know, writing in a, in a type safe language like Rust and then distributing that through the CDN. Very, very cool stuff. Yeah, they have a lot of really cool innovations. Even the um, the one 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 DNS resolver is a really fantastic um, innovation using AnyCast and and really driving a much faster DNS resolution service. They've been doing a lot of interesting stuff, and you know, despite the the HN fallout, I do hope that they have a successful IPO. Yeah, me too. It's it's great to see uh, new companies uh, that are that are focused on tech itself. You know, so many of the IPOs have been kind of consumer products augmented by tech. Uh, I love it when uh, when a company that is a pure technology company, an independent one, uh, you know, really uh, really is successful. I'm surprised Akamai let him uh, get out the door like that. Didn't just pick him off. Akamai has led Fastly and Cloudflare take a lot of business from them, and uh, we'll continue to see how that ends up resulting in the market shift as more people go cloud native. So we'll see. Moving on to uh, Amazon news. Uh, Amazon has acquired enterprise flash storage startup E8 Storage. Uh, This company was founded in 2014 and has sold predominantly rack-scale software storage solutions for the cloud. Uh, The deal is reported to be around $50 to $60 million in revenue. Uh, E8 had about 30 employees, according to LinkedIn, uh, and they previously raised about $18 million in funding. Uh, And this adds to the glowing list of acquisitions that Amazon has made this year, including things like TSO Logic and Eero, etc. Any speculation on what they might be thinking about doing with this uh, enterprise-grade flash storage solution and what this might mean for S3 or EBS storage in the future? Well, I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I know I'm not speaking out of school here, but uh, AWS has a longer history than people realize of, of innovating on the actual hardware they're running on and kind of not going with what the uh, industry norms are or, you know, components off the shelf can do. Um, and they have some absolutely uh, brilliant folks who are leading those efforts. So no speculation on exactly what they're going to do with it, but I'm excited to find out. From what I understand, the um, the technology that they've developed is you know ten times faster than any current non-volatile storage, so that could uh, really be a game changer around the big data stuff, especially. Yeah, for sure. Ten X is always a fun one to start with. Yeah, ten <laughs> X. Well, uh, around the big data stuff for sure. But I also, as you're as you're talking, I was just last night looking through the. Uh, uh, documentation for Firecracker, which is a really interesting project where they're doing micro VMs at container speed. It's kind of interesting to think about what it would mean to have very, very, very low latency persistent storage for uh, instantiating functions uh, on the fly. 
Yeah, I'm sure the, the spin-up time or the startup time for, for Lambdas is going to be bound by how quickly you can get that image onto the host and start it running. So much closer, much faster storage, which is significantly cheaper than RAM, I would assume, would be, uh, would be really good for event-based applications. I mean, RAM prices have, in storage prices got closer and closer as we move to flash in general, but there's still a lot more density in a flash storage array than you do get in a, a memory array. So that's probably true. Um, but yeah, definitely you can see a lot of use cases potentially in Lambdas, Firecracker, and then the big data stuff. And the more they can, you know, spin up uh, infrastructure quickly, you know, that's a much better story for them uh, as they continue to grow and compete against uh, both Google and Azure, who have, you know, different architectures, have different advantages, and it's something they can point out as a big advantage. Our storage is 10x faster. Um, that's a huge win. You know, and just controlling the whole supply chain of your product. And at, at $50 million, a bargain. Indeed. <laughs> oh, it's a rounding error. Uh, Amazon is apparently suing a, a former AWS exec uh, for joining rival Google division uh, as the cloud wars are escalating. Uh, they're suing them in King County Superior Court in Seattle. Uh, the executive uh, was apparently a former Amazon sales executive uh, with past experience in CF, several CEO roles as well as a manager at Microsoft. Uh, he's apparently focusing on fintech uh, when he was at AWS, uh, but now is at the Google team focusing on healthcare, uh, and Amazon thinks that's a little too close for comfort. Interesting bit of Twitter storming as people start talking about non-competes in general, and uh, Corey Quinn's actually been fighting the good fight on everything non-compete this week. Uh, so there's quite a bit of uh, interesting backlash happening in the market right now about non-competes, mostly stemmed by this action that Amazon's taking against this Google um, executive. So. I assume we'll we'll see this get resolved either out of court in a settlement as these normally do, um, or some other thing will happen here. But uh, definitely going to be interesting to see how this kind of shakes out in the next few weeks. Yeah, if I was that guy, I just moved to California. <laughs> I don't think that matters when you signed it when you're in Washington, just to move to California. I think it, I think it does. I actually think it does. <laughs> I, I think it does, but the the down payment on a house might be the the great limiting factor there. <laughs> easier just to easier just to. <laughs> <laughs> just to settle the lawsuit, just cheaper to settle the lawsuit. <laughs> might be cheaper, yeah. Awesome. That's very, very true. I hadn't thought about that part of it. Well, what's the alternative, though? I mean, you, you can't expect somebody who's, who's skilled in a particular area of an industry to either work for you forever or never go and use the, you know, use the, uh, the knowledge they've gained working for another company. I mean, I, mean, I suppose they could pay you for two years to be to not show up at work or something like that. It's a, well, that's, a, that's a, the thing is they're saying you know Amazon's seeking to prevent him from you know working at Google for eighteen months. I'm like, well, then are you going to pay him for those eighteen months that he can't work at Google? It's a little bit of a weird. I mean, I'm sure that there's they're concerned about you know go to market strategies and some of the things that Amazon's doing to attack fintech might get back to Google. Um, but you know, he sounds like he tried to do the right thing. He d he made sure he didn't go to fintech at Google. He's in the healthcare division. He tried to do the right thing, but Amazon doesn't quite agree. Moving on to uh, CloudFormation. So Amazon has released a public coverage roadmap uh, and a CDK goodies uh, this week. Uh, as you guys know, EKS and ECS also have a public uh, roadmap on GitHub. CloudFormation is growing faster than most AWS services itself, and the team has been prioritizing scalability um, over complete resource coverage. And so they have not reached their goal of 100% coverage of all Amazon services. Uh, and so to keep you informed and let you know when those are going to be coming out, they've now put this onto a Kanban board. Uh, you can identify them in uh, their different uh, categories from shipped coming soon. We're working on it and researching. Uh, so if you're waiting for that fancy new shiny uh, Amazon technology to be in CloudFormation and it's not there today, uh, definitely go check out the CloudFormation update. Yeah, good on them for doing that. And, and, and also uh, plus 100 to, to, to CDK. I, I mean, 
I didn't like writing code in XML 10 years ago, and I don't like writing code in JSON now. So having uh, real languages, thumbs up. Yeah, it's been a pretty heated discussion over CDK and whether or not you should be using a, a, a programming language like Python to uh, to deploy things in a deterministic way. But I'm, I'm all for the CDK. It's um, It's been a really long time coming, and it's it's something I'm going to use for sure. Yeah, the new CDK guide is just to clarify, um, you know, the new getting started guide for CDK, uh, including the new developer guide. Uh, they have some workshops that you can use to uh, help learn CDK, and they have a bunch of example code you can take a look at if you um, are looking for some very common use cases. But, you know, going back to our conversation about Capital One, and you mentioned... Um, you know, developers really want that feedback immediately in the IDE. Um, CDK might actually be the right way for them to start kind of building out that coverage. You can catch some things at the source code level in terms of cloud configuration. What I've learned in years of working on this is a lot of things you have to let that infrastructure's code uh, deploy into, say, a dev environment to understand how it's interacting with other pieces of infrastructure's code. So, for example, um, you might have uh, your IAM roles being defined one place in infrastructure as code, whether it's CloudFormation or Terraform or Ansible or what have you, and then uh, other developers using those modules. So uh, you can catch some things in source, uh, but you, you, you really do need to, I, I believe, e examine the, the end state because there's not a lot of determinism in these infrastructure as code uh, uh, tools. Uh, and just one quick plug, TypeScript instead of Python here would be uh, maybe a good choice because type systems make things safer. The thing I think people miss about CDK, though, is that the uh, infrastructure has not been deployed as you run the uh, the code. You use the code to generate the template, and then the template is deterministic um, as much as it can be when you still have parameters in CloudFormation templates. They're still... Uh, I would say they're still not entirely deterministic. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go on that. I can go real deep <laughs> on it because I've spent a lot of time on it. But anything you're referring to in the dynamic runtime environment, uh, you can't predict from the template or the source code. So, And, and that's where a lot of the, the, the devils uh, are hiding in those details. So uh, I agree with you. Um, you can do some at source code, uh, whether it's at the CDK level source code or the generated template or uh, HashiCorp language templates for Terraform. But all those things tend to kind of summon dynamic uh, information at the runtime, whether it's uh, from parameters in CloudFormation or state files in, uh, in Terraform, and those things can surprise you. So one other uh, interesting part about this article um, is this is a Jeff Barr blog post, which, you know, I always love Jeff's blog posts, but uh, this is the second time he's made a comment where I felt like he was sort of... Uh, lashing out at the consumers of his blog. And he has this line in here, and I'm going to read it to you guys. Before I close out, I would like to address one common comment, that AWS is part of a big company and that we should simply throw more resources at CloudFormation. While the team is growing, implementing robust, secure coverage, it is still resource intensive. Please consider the following quote, courtesy of the must-read Mythical Man Month. Good cooking takes time. If you are made to wait, it is to serve you better and to please you. And it just, this is the second time he has said something where he kind of poked at the audience and it's, it's really interesting and I'm, I'm almost going to start creating a Twitter feed just the things Jeff Barr says <laughs> that make you go hmm yeah well, well he's such a cheery guy as a, as a curmudgeon I'm glad to see him getting a little more curmudgeonly like we need we need more curmudgeons in this industry uh, because he's he's kind of right about that like I don't take that as poking at the audience as much as stating a truth about software development which is growing teams often lowers quality and uh I know I sound like an AWS fanboy here, 
but I'm, I'm not. Uh, I, I just think that he, he's got a point there. He's completely correct. It's just the it's a totally interesting choice. And, and so the other one that he he was talking about uh, some features around a new instance type. And he, he called out specifically, you know, when customers give us adequate use cases and business justification, then we deliver and, and execute on those things. And it was the way he wrote it there, he implied that it was uh, customers, you know, typically ask for frivolous things like we just want things 10x faster or we just want it better or cheaper or whatever that. And he was he was making this point that, you know, more concrete details and all that would help them make better business decisions to build services for us. And again, he's not saying something that's incorrect <laughs> and he's completely accurate, but it's just a very interesting uh, choice and perspective to put that into a blog post where you're trying to announce a new feature or a new instance type. It kind of made you feel like you'd, we'd ask for the wrong thing to begin with, you know. It's like, well, I didn't realize uh, two years ago when you announced this that, that we'd need this thing in the future. So yeah, it's, it's a little strange. Yeah. I, I think we've se- we've seen this before, right? When, when you have a really dominant company in a space that's just a rocket ship, they kind of start feeling their oats and sometimes they get a little tone deaf. You know, we saw it with Microsoft in the early aughts, and maybe there's a little bit of that going on. I hope to see this kind of trend kind of leave the blog post. I mean, I, I don't mind when he talks about it on Twitter, or when, if he said it on Twitter, or if he said it, you know, off the cuff at a, on stage. I feel a little bit different about it when it's in the official Amazon communication. <laughs> yeah. I really like Jeff, but uh, and when I see him next time, I'm going to, I'm actually going to ask him about this because it, it bothers me at a level. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, Amazon has re- introduced a new uh, white paper called Preparing for the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, this is a privacy act that was passed last year in June uh, and is going to go into effect on January 1st. And many people describe this as GPDR light. Um, this is not quite as strict as the EU's requirements, but um, this is the first bit of privacy legislation in California. And so this might have a big impact to you if you're collecting PII data. And so this guide uh, walks you through some of the things you should be concerned about and breaks it into four big categories, uh, including disclosure of the categories and specific pieces of PII collected, the categories of the sources from where the PI is collected, the business purpose of collecting and or selling the information, and the categories of third parties with whom the information is shared, um, which are all things that you will be disclosing uh, as part of the California Privacy Act. I'm not sure how, how this is going to work exactly because it's, it protects California consumers, but I, what, if, what if the organization is not based in California? If you would like to sell to a California resident, you will have to meet this requirement even if you are not based in the state. It's typically how these things work. Uh, and New York actually has some interesting similar regulations around like multi-factor for uh, financial systems, et cetera, that require you know you to meet those requirements even if your company is not in New York. Uh, if you're going to use that software in the state or it's going to be something a consumer has in the state, you have to be able to prove this information. So this is one of those federal versus state rights issues. <laughs> Uh, but this will affect everyone yeah. who's in uh, this business line. We do a lot of GDPR work. Uh, baked into our product is the ability to analyze your cloud infrastructure uh, uh, against GDPR um, you know, uh, regulations and constraints. And what we're seeing in the market are companies that may not even do a whole lot of business in Europe just adopting GDPR. Just to go to the, you know, what people, I think what people are really looking for is a standard that captures the other standards so they can meet one. Um, that, that, that seems to be what's going on, whether or not folks are, are doing a lot of business in a particular area or not. Yeah, I like to think that it's just the right thing to do for consumers, and consumers should have these rights. Good on California. Yeah, plus one. Yes, uh, I do expect we'll start seeing more and more regulations from states, so then eventually become some type of federal standard, which will replace these state-level restrictions. But uh, that's still a few years out, I think. 
All right, Amazon has uh, decided they want to solve uh, a big problem, and that problem is the spread of big data, SQL databases, data warehouses, NoSQL, key volume, columnar databases, Parquet files, and S3 objects for the data that you need to query to make your business decisions. And so they have released a new query language they call the One Query Language for All, uh, your data, they're naming Amazon Particle, uh, and is a SQL-compatible query language that makes it easy to efficiently query your data across all of those uh, data warehouses that you are maintaining in your company. Uh, this is an Apache 2.0 release product, so this is open source uh, for several components. Uh, and you can find the tutorial, specifications, and reference implementations out on the internet uh, today. Uh, there are several design principles that went into Particle. Uh, they wanted to have SQL compatibility. Uh, they wanted to have first class for nested data types. Uh, they wanted to have optional schema and query stability, minimalize extensions, format independence, and data store independence. Uh, so this is a really actually kind of exciting release uh, that I hope to see start showing up in a lot of products uh, in the future if it gets a widespread adoption, um, which is what Amazon hopes to have happen. I think one of the biggest blockers for adoption of um, non-SQL databases has been just lack of understanding on from software developers on and how to use them. Like when MongoDB first appeared, it was uh, it's a it's a real hill to climb to to learn how to use and to, to query things if you've grown up in the SQL kind of mindset. So this this is fantastic. I would start a round of applause right now if I if if that were appropriate. Uh, I think it's it's awesome and to my mind, uh, SQL is an absolute gem. Um, that uh, we take for granted, right? It's it's declarative. Um, it's just so well designed as compared to other things. And we've built a lot of systems at Fugue using you know DynamoDB and uh, lots of other data store types. Man, is it going to be nice to be able to write uh, in a single uh, a single uh, well designed declarative language against all of them. Yeah, and you look at these, uh, and you look at larger organizations and all these as a services coming out. You know, data is definitely getting partitioned and ending up in silos at different vendors. So it'd be super cool if we'll see how many vendors uh, support it. But to get that enterprise view again across all of your data stores would be super cool. The fun part is going to be trying to performance tune queries. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that will be the, the more interesting part. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know if this is a real-time query language. <laughs> so <laughs> do keep that in mind as you... Uh, you go forward. Uh, you mentioned uh, vendor support. So one of the quotes that was in the article um, is from the CTO of Couchbase uh, and Senior Vice President of Engineering, Ravi Mayuram. Uh, As a pioneer in bringing SQL to JSON when we introduced N1QL more than three years ago, Couchbase believes that the foundations on which SQL was built for relational databases are just as sound for JSON data model and database. Particle is a welcome next step in this convergence, and we look forward to supporting it. That, to me, tells me Couchbase is going to support Particle, which is great. So if you know if other vendors are going to go down that path and, and support this technology, then that has a chance of being something that comes a standard. And I also think this is like a milestone. Amazon came up with a cool name. <laughs> yes, this is, this is one of the first really good before. names in a long time from Amazon. I, I fully agree with you on that. <laughs> How they'll ruin this, though, is that they'll, on main stage, Warner will call it the Party QL or something. <laughs> they won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah. So, so I mean, like, I, I see it, I read it as particle. Uh, and if that is not how it is said on the main stage, I will be very sad at reInvent. Uh, so we, I, I will hope that this is a good name and not something that it's, that it's not. I don't know if you're right or you're wrong, but in my book, you're right. I hope I'm right. I, yeah, we argue about cube cuddle or cube CTL or cube control here on the show sometimes. And uh, I feel like I'm, I'm very strongly right that it is not cuddle because no one wants to cuddle their Kubernetes cluster. <laughs> you haven't met my Kubernetes. You should hug your Kubernetes cluster today, Peter. That's what you should do. Well, 
moving on to Google News. Uh, Google is debuting a new migration tool for Anthos hybrid cloud platform. Uh, so, of course, Anthos is their ability to run GKE on any cloud provider as well as on-premise. Uh, and so this tool they demoed briefly at Google Next. Uh, but this is now officially uh, out there in beta for you to use to actually take a virtual machine or VM running on-premise or in another cloud and actually migrate it into a container running on Google's compute engine. Um, so this is really fantastic uh, utility if you're trying to move to containers and you have some very traditional workloads. They have a money quote here from Google's cloud vice president of engineering, I.L. Minner. With this launch, customers now can use Migrate for Anthos to automatically modernize their VMs and move them to containers without any of the complex manual processes of traditional container modernization strategies. Our new approach gives you more flexibility to modernize your existing infrastructure investments with ease, even for VMs you'd previously written off as not being able to modernize. Uh, so that's actually a really interesting uh, announcement. And if it works as advertised, maybe a lot more applications will become containerized. Am I missing something, or are they claiming that you can move an entire VM into That is what they are claiming, sir. Yeah, I'm... I'm kind of very curious about I'm not it. saying you should. I'm just saying you can. <laughs> well, my first question is how, and secondly is, well, I mean, that's if that's the case, then, well, still how, but <laughs> it's, it sounds cool. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I mean, are they, yeah, you're not going to see a nice, pretty... Uh, Docker file. No, for sure. This is this is going to be. It's either going to be a container that instantiates a VM layer of some sort, which might be awful, um, or it's going to do some type of transformation. I mean, when they demoed it on Google Next on stage, it, you know, it looked very slick and very cool, but it, you know, it's a very purpose-built container they were migrating. Um, so we'll see what the actually rubber meets the road with real applications. Um, but I am I'm very curious to see if it works even half as well as they uh, advertise for it. Uh, they also announced with this one that uh, Azure uh, is now supported with the Migrate for Compute Engine. Uh, previously, this only worked with EC2, but this allows you to point uh, uh, this migration tool at Azure at a running instance, and it'll move it over to Google's Compute Engine without having to do any refactoring there. And then they've also announced uh, the service mesh has continued to get developed with the GA of Traffic Director and a new beta availability of a new Layer 7 internal load balancer. You guys, are, you guys are stunned with amazement. That's all I hear. <laughs> <laughs> so innovative. I'm just still trying to figure out how to move a whole VM into a container. And why would you do that to begin with? I mean, well, I'm sure I'm sure someone wants to do it. I, I could see like, OK, we're 95 percent to containers and we've got 5 percent of these things and we don't want to run a whole nother set of tools to run these other 5 percent. So let's just get them on the rest of the platform and then a VM running in a container, running in a VM running what i mean i don't know that's, i don't know that's what they're yeah, doing yeah figure out why it's so understand <laughs> the latency yeah. some of these things feel a little bit turtles all the way down to me um, yeah. you know i mentioned firecracker earlier i've, I've been a big fan for uh, years of um, the concept of things like unikernels uh, which are impractical, but when you look at just like micro VMs, that makes a lot of sense to me versus just containerizing everything. Uh, this strikes me though as a really clever and smart move in the market to get enterprises to have ease of adoption of cloud. I work with a lot of enterprises and a lot of them struggle to attract and retain really uh, deeply uh, cloud skilled workforces. And having like easy buttons for moving stuff, I think will will be good for Google. Google Cloud Next 19 uh, Tokyo just occurred, and they released several features for the 
uh, different components of G Suite, GCP, and Cloud Identity, and that includes a new advanced protection program for enterprises. Uh, so this allows you to enable FIDO security keys, um, automatically block access to third-party apps at the company level uh, that the company is marked as not trusted, uh, and enable enhanced scanning of incoming email for phishing attempts, viruses, and attachments with malicious content. Uh, the Titan security keys are now GA'd uh, in more countries in Europe and in Asia. And then the machine learning for G Suite capability now has ability to attack, uh, detect anomalous activity in your G Suite account. Uh, and now Cloud Identity has now been extended to support password vaulted apps uh, in addition to standards-based uh, applications. So if you're looking for a password vault to rule them all, uh, Cloud Identity is not a bad choice, as well as this delivery of single, uh, seamless one-click access to SaaS applications uh, for users and single point of management and visibility for those users. So uh, overall, nice improvements coming out of Google Cloud Next 19 in Tokyo, uh, all around security, uh, which of course is a big topic for all of the cloud vendors. Yeah, we've heard of a bunch of AWS S3 bucket exploits from misconfiguration. Um, have you guys heard of any, like when you raided a corporation's big set of shared folders in G Suite? I haven't heard of one, like G Drive to mass exfiltration. I mean, I, I, I'm aware of some examples of it, um, but they typically don't become big headline news <laughs> in how they're violated or, yeah. or how they get exploited. Um, you know, I'd also say the same thing. You don't hear a lot of people complaining about cost management of Azure or Google either. Um, so, you know, there are some things that are very unique to specific clouds for certain different reasons. And, uh, you know, this is definitely not an area that you hear a lot of noise about. There's also a lot of maturity in both G Suite and Office 65 um, with tools like Adalon uh, for DLP protection and for CASB and all those kind of things that really help protect these type of environments that just really aren't there in the public clouds quite yet. So I think this is like a preemptive um, product or, or was your question really to figure out whether it was in response to a, a loss that we didn't know about or no it just just struck me i've got you know we're working at customers and they got you know huge huge enterprises are all on like g suite and you start thinking about it wow that's everything and it's in a nice easy to consume gui <laughs> just surprised there yeah. i guess i'm surprised i haven't heard of more um more of these large uh Data leaks haven't been, oh, someone's... Well, I mean, a lot of them start out as phishing attacks. So the headlines that you're looking for are phishing attacks against G Suite, and there's a lot of those. There's a lot of those against yeah. Office, too. Um, I mean, a little bit of Googling, you'll find quite a few, but they're just, again, they're they're typically more tied to human errors um, in big way. I mean, all of these are human errors in some way, but uh, you know, this is very typically like the secretary clicked an email she shouldn't have and gave her G Suite credentials, and then they use that to exfiltrate the CEO's credit card, right? Like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are very you know explanatory things. Whereas is you know your S three buckets expose the internet. That's your you know your top paid system engineers and DevOps people who are supposed to know what they're doing messing up and right. exposing you know millions of records of customer data. Um, that's a little bit different. <laughs> so I think that's maybe yeah. the the divide that you're seeing there. Uh, maybe some of it goes to, to the scale of Amazon. I mean, that is definitely a factor, too. And that's why I don't think we hear a lot about cost management in uh, Google and Azure yet. Um, a, their enterprise teams discount a whole lot more than Amazon does. And number two, they just don't have the, the breadth yet to really have a lot of customers with that problem. All right, moving on to uh, Azure news. Uh, Azure has introduced a new dedicated host. Uh, dedicated hosts are now in preview. Uh, this enables you to run a host dedicated completely to your organization with either Linux or Windows virtual machines on a single tenant physical server. Uh, this is a me too catch up because both Google and AWS have had this for a while. 
Uh, Azure Hyper Benefits also are extended to your Azure dedicated host. So you can save money by using on-premises Windows servers uh, and SQL Server licenses with software assurance or qualifying subscription licenses. Uh, of course, because the Amazon, you know, Amazon, Google, and Azure cannot get together and agree on instance types, um, I tried to compare them as best as I can. <laughs> so the DSV3 series dedicated host uh, from Azure is a uh, 64 v cpu 256 gig memory box uh, that'll run you a smooth 2900 dollars and third or 2933 dollars per month uh, the closest amazon equivalent to that is the c5 metal uh, which is a 96 vCPU, 192 gig of memory for 2978 a month. And the closest Google equivalent, which is the only option Google gives you for this actually, is a 96 vCPU, 624 gig of memory box for $3,191. Uh, so uh, they're all slightly different in configuration, but depending on if you need CPU or memory or what optimization you need here, uh, you can get a pretty good deal on a dedicated host on the three different cloud providers, now including Azure. Yeah, the Amazon one's pretty close, but the, the Google equivalent is one and a half times as many vCPUs and three times the memory for yes. virtually the same price. So it's interesting disparity, I guess, in, yeah. uh, in the specs. Uh, it also uh, is the only option from Google. So if you if you don't need that much, uh, there's no other option for you. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, and, you well. know, as long as you understand that you have one option, as long as it's black, uh, you are good to go. Uh, sometimes it, you know the illusion of choice can be can be uh, awkward. Sometimes spend all the time figuring out what we should use instead of just getting on with the job and yes, picking sure. one and doing it. Uh, Cisco and Microsoft are joining forces to integrate their Kubernetes container platforms. Uh, this allows you to use uh, Cisco's Kubernetes container platform on-premises and link that to the Azure Kubernetes service. Uh, this service allows you to move those containers directly from Cisco infrastructure on-prem right to uh, Azure um, as necessary or on-demand. And the Cisco container support uh, is a tight integration between the AKS service and containers. Uh, Cisco container will support Azure Active Directory uh, common identity integration uh, very shortly as well so you can use your same Active Directory to maintain your Cisco containers and your Azure uh, AKS containers. So nice uh, improvement if you're trying to do hybrid uh, Kubernetes without uh, Google involved. I didn't realize Cisco had a container um, offering of any kind. You know, I first learned about it when I read this press release. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> but I think Cisco, I don't think, I don't think uh, containers, I think firewalls. Well, I mean, I can. I, I know some data centers that have a whole lot of Cisco blades in them. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I always forget they have hardware, and then I remember that I manage a large <laughs> number of them. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. uh, Azure Archive Storage is better with a new lower pricing. So in some regions, they have dropped the price by up to fifty percent, uh, and this new pricing is effective immediately. So if you just got your bill for uh, July, that bit, you might see that savings already. Uh, they did uh, commission a study from Forrester, and they interviewed four of their customers and identified 112% ROI by adopting archive storage, uh, which I say no data, no no data, and then uh, this overall reduced monthly cloud storage cost by 95% for most companies, which based on the fact that most companies don't need most of their data active all the time, this makes perfect sense. And so I'm glad that Forrester uh, told us the obvious yeah. that we already knew. I'm waiting for the Azure premium archive storage. Yeah, 50% more. Back to normal <laughs> yeah. pricing. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it'll be, Azure premium archive. Well, uh, so you know, we we give credit to Microsoft, uh, to Satya and team for you know kind of really changing the legacy of Microsoft to being a more modern, more friendly company. Uh, but the uh, old legacy DNA has uh, struck again, and they have updated the licensing terms for dedicated cloud hosts. 
Uh, so on October 1st, 2019, Microsoft will modify their licensing terms related to outsourcing rights and dedicated host cloud services. Uh, you will now be required to have your Microsoft licenses under software assurance with mobility rights uh, to be able to move them to any cloud provider other than Microsoft. Uh, if you're on Microsoft, you can purchase a separate hybrid uh, rights package to your licensing, which will save you uh, a considerable amount of money, up to 40% for the Windows licenses and 55% on your Azure SQL database licenses. Uh, and But net-net, what this means for you is that uh, if you are if you have licenses on premises that you want to move to a dedicated host on AWS or GCP, uh, and that license has software assurance and was bought before October 2019, then you can move that to the cloud provider with no issues. Uh, but if you purchase that license after October and you do not have software assurance and license mobility, uh, you will be out of compliance uh, for using that license on AWS or oh, Google. Wow. Uh, and if you're a traditional outsourcing, uh, like with Rackspace or with IBM or uh, many other players who are doing more like traditional outsourcing where they're actually taking an application and putting it on their their infrastructure, um, that is still more than okay and still allowed in the, in the process. So they have a dedicated list that you need to check to see if your provider is on it. And if your, list, if your provider is on that list, uh, you will need to pay for the new licensing model. Uh, this uh, had negative reactions from both Warner and Robert Enslin at Google. Uh, Warner had to say, yet another bait and switch by Microsoft, eliminating license benefits to force MS use. First, MS took away bring your own license SQL server on RDS. Now no Windows upgrades with BYOL on AWS. Hard to trust a company who raises prices, eliminates benefits, and restricts freedom of choice. And uh, Robert Enslin from Google said, shelfware, complex pricing, and now vendor lock-in. Microsoft is taking its greatest hits from the 90s to the cloud. <laughs> that is that is brutal. That I, mean, I, I just start thinking about um, it's going to become so difficult to, uh, to even know if you're in compliance. You know, who's, who's managing your gear? Who owns your gear? That's a tough one. That's a tough pill to swallow. I find this interesting on a, a couple of levels, but what comes to mind is... Uh, how many new applications are actually being built on a Microsoft technology stack? <laughs> and I suspect it's relatively few. I mean, I, I was involved with the pre-release, you know, .NET 1.0 stuff with C Sharp. Uh, I, I like a lot of things Microsoft does, but I just don't see a lot of it out there in terms of new development. And from a business perspective, that means they have to try to uh, capture value from what's already been built on their stack. Um so, you know, it's it's interesting times, I'm sure, for them. Definitely a problem in some areas of the country, right? So like here in the Bay Area, we're all at, you know, it's very typically Java Linux shops. Uh, you know, you're in Seattle, it's very typically Microsoft shops. Uh, if you're in the government contracting space, that's definitely a big Microsoft uh, hold as well. So it really kind of depends on which part of the country you're in and, and what you're exposed to. Um, so you know, there are places that .NET is still the king's bee and, and what everyone uses in other places it's, it's not and people don't like it and they see it as just Oracle uh, in less harsh uh, clothing. It, it definitely is interesting, uh, but it, it really does set back a lot of the, the good uh, goodwill that Satya has built in the community over the last few years. Um, with this much more modern Microsoft that's open to open source, it's open to Linux, it's open to doing things the right way versus uh, supporting the Microsoft monopoly. And so I would not be surprised to see some of this language get changed based on very large customers probably being very unhappy. But, you know, you never know in these type of situations how it will actually work out. Uh, we will see by October 1st if something changes. I mean, you know, they, have, they, they write this license and then the, for those customers, they can do whatever they want from a pricing standpoint. So it really doesn't mean anything necessarily. Well, I mean, yes, they can change the terms for any given customer, but... 
uh, a lot of companies don't have the ability to negotiate you know, special EA pricing or different discount levels uh, based on volume. So it it'll penalize you even if you can negotiate a heavy EA agreement, especially if you you know you had SQL Server licenses and you didn't have them under software assurance or mobility rights. You perpetually owned that license, so you should be able to move to cloud without any issue. But now you can't, and that's actually a violation of the terms. And so these are these little wrinkles that'll burn an IT department that doesn't understand these uh, these little wrinkles in the process. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta understand them, and you gotta negotiate them, uh, but I don't necessarily think they have to change the language um, in general uh, to make this a revenue neutral or income neutral um, or cost neutral for any other large customers that they choose to make it cost neutral for. That's true. Well, and, and it'll be very cost neutral uh, if you like to go to Azure. Yeah. <laughs> and you could even save you can even save money on those licenses right. by going to Azure because they'll give you this hybrid benefit, which they only sell to Azure customers. Um, which gives you much better discounts uh, for using Azure's products. Yep. Well, uh, Microsoft has announced at Black Hat uh, a new Azure Security Lab, which offers up to a three hundred thousand uh, dollar bounty for bugs. This Azure Security Lab is an isolated set of dedicated cloud hosts designed to be tested by security professionals in order to strengthen the defenses of the cloud systems. Now, if you're a Black Hat running to your computer right now to go get three hundred thousand uh, dollars, do stop because you had to be an approved security researcher who's been ex- accepted to the program, uh, but they are accepting applications now, so if you are interested, uh, do do that. The traditional Azure Bug Bounty uh, program has also increased their rewards from 20000 to uh, $40,000 at the maximum, uh, and these rewards are, of course, discretionary based on what you find. Uh, analyst Holger Mueller of Constellation Research Incorporated said, It is a sign of confidence from Microsoft that it's inviting so-called white hat hackers to try to break into its cloud. It's a great approach to accelerate the efforts of infrastructure as service vendors to make their clouds more secure, Mueller said. One can hope Microsoft's competitors will follow this initiative, but executives need to be reminded that direct hacking is the lesser threat than social engineering, which they still have to protect their enterprises from. But still a very real threat, as we've seen in recent days. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, and kudos to them. Uh, Like coming back around to your comments about the 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 Satya Nadella version of Microsoft, you know, I have been finding uh, what they've been doing in 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 the last couple few years really pretty exciting, Uh, and I think uh, this is another good example that the licensing thing not so much as you pointed out. Yeah, they they do so many things right, and then that legacy DNA comes back and bites you uh, when you least expect it, which is which is unfortunate. Yeah, I guess they have to offer enough. Uh, enough to um, make you want to get the cash from them instead of from you know a nation state or somebody else who potentially pay you more for the exploit. Yeah, it's a little interesting to me that they they are going to restrict those to security researchers. I don't know why you wouldn't just be a part of your bug bounty program if you find something severe enough that they deem to be worth three hundred thousand um, dollars. You should probably want to know about that even if you're not a, if the person who reported to you is not a security researcher. So I'm a little I'm a little perplexed by the 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 you know exclusion of most black hats or white hats um but you know i i understand why they may want to control it right now get some feedback and identify the low-hanging fruit maybe and then open it up more wide maybe next year yeah i mean one speculation there and it's it's only that is uh, i know that the cloud service providers do a lot of very active uh, uh day in day out work to uh, prevent black hats from doing bad things on their cloud and if this kind of sandbox environment, the security lab environment, lets people a little looser uh, in the environment, I could see why they wouldn't want actual black hats going and learning how to exploit the public cloud in a way that uh, the you know the actual production instances 
uh, where uh, they might be uh, be uh, you know caught by monitoring activity in in public cloud. So, you know, you, you don't want to give actual bad guys, you know, North Korea or something. A, a training ground. I, mean, I assume that this, this infrastructure has to be somewhat out there on the internet. It's, it's very possible that you know they'll find this infrastructure too. <laughs> Just they won't have they won't have the ability to report it. I, that's my concern. Is you know, how restricted is this environment? Is something I have to VPN into to get to? If that's the case, then I agree with you completely. But um, those details are not disclosed. I'm purely speculating. So. Yeah, no, I, and our podcast is built around speculation. <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough. All right. Well, that's it for new news this week. Uh, let's move on to the lightning round. And as we have a guest, Peter, maybe you want to uh, walk through the rules. Josh, the rules are there are no rules. Say what you want. I'll. I'll uh, read out a, a quick uh, item here that's happened this week. Take your best shot if you've got something interesting to say about it. Um, I tend to give a winning vote to just my favorite comment of the uh, day, and you might hear a ding, which means that one is that one's up there on the list. But sometimes I don't do that. So enjoy, uh, and anything uh, anything you say can be used against you later. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> New AWS blog post towards a bastionless world. If only Microsoft had read this last week <laughs> before they announced their bastion service. <laughs> I had something so close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the notion of a bastion host in a in a, a virtualized network is is kind of skeuomorphic and silly on its own. Good, good move. AWS parallel cluster with AWS directory services authentication. Because your HPC people really want Active Directory. Uh, to authenticate for sure Th this came from one big customer yeah exactly. oh for sure <laughs> that one customer is very happy right now no one else who uses hvc will care aws amplify framework adds predictions categories uh does it predict that i won't use this tool brutal <laughs> but no ding eh, that's a, a comment <laughs> comment could could mean something you never know there are no rules aws code pipeline adds pipeline status to the pipeline listing just another version of the uh, the Amazon console. I look forward to the next announcement. Amazon code, line, code pipeline adds pipeline status to pipeline listing to pipeline alerts. Could you pipe no. those together? Could they just done pipes in between? I think you could. Yeah, yeah potentially. Amazon FSX now supports Windows shadow copies for restoring files to previous versions. Oh, good. 2003 has arrived oh, again, nice. and we now get shadow copies once again. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Amazon MSK adds support for Apache Kafka version 2.2.1 and expands regions. One of the first to announce the new Bahrain region as available for you. Uh, as uh, Another 25 lightning round topics I cut from the list all said new service in Bahrain. Uh, so you're welcome, Peter, that I didn't Thank keep you. those for you. Thank you. And, and how many <laughs> asynchronous messaging services do we need? Yeah. Ooh, oh, nice. oh, we're up to uh, about six, I think, right now. If you let's see, SQS, uh, Kinesis, uh, Ra or MQ, the the MQ product, uh, the new one, EventBridge, they just came out with, and MSK. That's five. I'm pretty sure there's one more. I'm forgetting, but yes, there's a lot. <laughs> e e easy to craft a good architecture from that. Yes. Oh, for sure. I, I you know I'm waiting for the the new service called uh, Amazon Glue for messaging that then puts these all together for you so you don't have to do it yourself <laughs> amazon quick side ad support for custom colors embedding for all user types and new regions so crystal reports uh nine features now coming to quick site super happy <laughs> i remember <about> crystal reports <laughs> uh, I, I was certified in crystal reports back in the day <laughs> that's awesome 
Amazon API Gateway supports secured connectivity between REST APIs and Amazon Virtual Private Clouds in additional regions. Uh, we should roll out security features much more quickly than this. It's like it's, there's no excuse really to, to have deployed this kind of update in some places but not others. Azure has released new Azure Databricks pre-purchase plans and, of course, new regional availability. Maybe that'll help offset the additional license costs for running your uh, SQL Server on AWS. Yeah. Google made web application vulnerability scans for GKE and Compute Engine now generally available. Uh, Peter, I uh, want to let you know that your container uh, has a SAV5 vulnerability that I need you to fix uh, right after the podcast. AWS EMR can now achieve three times better Spark performance with the release of EMR 5.25.0. Great job, Amazon. Way to take credit for all that hard open source work. <laughs> I mean, Dot, isn't it time for EMR 6? You, you are asking a guy who doesn't do machine learning, so I'm going to say that's maybe. A lot of, it's just, that's a lot of dots. <laughs> dot 25, it's time. It's time to just move to 6. I'll, I'll let you write an email, a, a hastily crafted email to the Spark Foundation all right, uh, you know, yep. I think uh, I think Justin pretty much was the only one talking. So Justin, you win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I apologize. You've got a, a dud guest for the the witty quips. I I just don't. That's not in my arsenal. It, it, it's not hard though, it, it, you know, to impress us. So you know, it, one one zinger would have won the whole thing for you. So don't feel bad. All right, uh, Jonathan, you want to take us to cool tools? Yeah. So uh, since we have Josh on the podcast today, I figured we'd ask him all about Fugue and what it can do for its customers. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So um, Fugue is an automation system for cloud security through the entire SDLC. So uh, what we do is we apply software engineering principles to cloud security from an architecture perspective. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that uh, when you do deployments in development, um, you can have Fugue automatically through the CI/CD toolchain uh, tell you if any of the things you're going to introduce in the way of uh, new infrastructure or changes to infrastructure uh, break any policies out of the box. Those policies include GDPR, ISO 27K, uh, SOC 2, PCI, CIS, HIPAA. Uh, you can also write your own custom policies. And so what this gives you is the ability to see right up front whether you're doing something dangerous without having to memorize phone books of policies. We also uh, build a complete uh, model of the infrastructure and all the resources so we can do things like automatically visualize in nice network diagrams everything you have in your cloud. Right now, those clouds are AWS and Azure. Then we also have uh, this unique ability to do what we call baselining and baseline enforcement. So if you have a known good configuration, you've built your CloudFormation stacks or your Terraform modules, you've deployed infrastructure in production, you can baseline that with a single API call or a click on our console, and then Fugue will alert you uh, when anything drifts from the known good configuration. And if you ask us to, Fugue can actually automatically heal things back to the known good configuration without you writing any code. So whether that's a bad port gets opened or a good port gets closed or a routing table gets changed or an IAM role gets assigned that shouldn't be, we can actually enforce in real time uh, all that in the infrastructure. Uh, so, so does Fugue use CloudFormation or Terraform or one of those other tools to 
to make those changes, or does it, is it just native API calls, or how does it how do you actually um, remediate things? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, on the back end, Fugue does use uh, uh, Terraform as a library. We're not just relying on Terraform's logic to do those remediations. We have a lot of business logic around that. But for API coverage, uh, we do leverage the um, uh, uh, what are called providers in Terraform, so AWS and Azure, and we'll be adding Google soon uh, and others in the future. Uh, but most of the kind of magic of Fugue is in that business logic around uh, uh, you know drift detection, baselining, and uh, self-healing. Oh, cool. Um, I guess one of the one of the challenges with any kind of security tooling has been knowing what, to, what which rules to turn on and which rules to turn off, um, because there's potentially thousands of different things you could measure or monitor or want to remediate. So where does a customer start? I guess in uh, in picking what what they should be looking out for. So that's a good point. So let me let me say that Fugue doesn't rely on policies or rules for remediation, and that's a big difference between us and anyone else in the space. Um, our competitors tend to look for security problems. We actually have a baseline, which is every resource and every attribute on every resource in a known good configuration. So for example, if uh, somebody uh, were to go in and remove tags from a VPC, we can put them back because we know that whole configuration. Um, so it's the remediations are not based on policies. Uh, so once you have a baseline, the policies you've chosen um, are actually not relevant to drift detection or enforcing that baseline. You've already looked at those policies. So um, in, in Fugue, uh, you can choose policies. I would recommend if people don't live in regulated industries, starting with CIS Benchmark. Um, it's a pretty good starting place to just get a high-level overview. Uh, we're building out, out a lot of custom policies now. And uh, by the way, our policies are all uh, based on OPA, which is a cloud uh, native computing foundation standard, uh, incubation standard for policy as code. Customers can also write their own. So you can choose which libraries you want. And we can actually visualize that in our visualizer tool. So we give you a map of the infrastructure and we paint things red that are out of compliance with the policies you've asked us to look at. Uh, but then once you have a baseline, the drift detection and the self-healing, uh, the baseline enforcement, are independent of those policies. It's based on that known good state. So then how do you approach changes to the baseline? So you mentioned tagging, for example, right? And let's say uh, it's supposed to be tagged with five or six values based on a company policy, right? And let's say you know, you've removed one of those because you know you determine you no longer need it, or maybe you change the value to something else. That does that become a change that I have to do then to the baseline, or does it learn that that's an authorized change? Then how does it make that determination? Yeah, so our customers usually do that through their CI/CD pipeline, where when they're deploying a change, they tell if they're using a baseline enforcement, the self-healing behavior, uh, they'll tell if you uh, stop that for a minute. I'm actually making a legitimate change. Uh, they do that through an API, so Jenkins or CircleCI or whatever they're using just calls out to Fugue and says, pause the enforcement. They make the change. Many of our customers, most actually, leave uh, drift detection turned on because our record of the mutations of the environment become a nice check on whether their infrastructure's code templates operated as intended. They get a nice collection of things that can either be piped to Slack or pipe to a CMDB or whatever you want. 
And uh, then uh, through a simple API call, uh, the, a new baseline is established and an enforcement is, is turned back on. Uh, and that can happen, you know, 100 times a day uh, for different environments. We allow folks to scope these fugue environments uh, down to the however they choose to kind of uh, partition their cloud infrastructure. So you might have 100 different fugue environments with different settings uh, that you're able to manipulate through the API in your uh, existing CI CD toolchain. So what's the scope of the, the, the types of resources that you can you can baseline? Do you, do you go as far as logging into uh, machines and uh, copying out configuration files and things like that? Or is it, is it at the infrastructure level? Uh, we do not do that. It is at the cloud API level. And uh, I, I'm hesitant to say infrastructure level because the line is very blurry right now with things like uh, Lambda, which we use a lot of, right? Is that application or infrastructure? Uh, but we only talk to cloud APIs. We have no routable IP address connection to anything in the customer environment, which I think is important from a security perspective. Um, and also there are a fair amount of tools out there that do kind of in instance configuration management, and it's just not something uh, folks have asked us for. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a hole in the market. Um, I know Terraform has kind of a, the Sentinel uh, offering, which is really not very full-featured. So this is, um, this, is, this is pretty neat. Well, thanks. Hey, you mentioned uh, the Terraform, you know, use some of those kind of concepts. So then do you have providers that I can use in Terraform to help also pause baselines? And then, and then you also mentioned Jenkins. So do you have plugins that um, provide some of that API stuff, or is it you know, do I have to write that myself? Uh, we have a Swagger API, and we've done a number of integrations against that Swagger API, so it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, so right now, that's the the main mechanism. I would just just comment that I think this is definitely a huge gap that uh, we see. Both, um, you know, the, we've seen tons of relatively large companies just completely embracing infrastructure as code, but that um, having a closed loop model is always something that has to be uh, created with either pipelines or other methods of really trying to uh, eliminate the possibility of drift instead of having tools to be able to correct drift when it happens. And oftentimes that's a huge, you, you think it's okay until um, certain issues come up that, uh, that can, you can really slow down comp, you know, emergency maintenance items or other, other areas where, uh, they need it. They need a. They need a way to get around that, and so the, I think that uh, tools like this um, are are going to be a, a mainstay coming up, where you know we have an opportunity to accept the fact that drift may happen and and uh, get, have a way to get back without it seeming like it's impossible to where we have to block drift at all costs. Not just drift, maybe, but um, but also mistakes. I mean, we, we will um, we have a, a change process and people manually approve or disapprove the changes and then you rely on somebody to go and log into a thing and make a change and I, I like the idea of using a tool like this to actually like you said Peter, just close the loop completely and you you get you document the change you're going to make you make the change then you have another tool that checks that the change that you've made was actually the change you were supposed to make right i'm, I'm so glad to hear uh, you guys talking like this i mean as a, as a developer what i like is determinism <laughs> i like my code to reflect what's happening in whether it's in memory with a local program or if I'm doing infrastructure as code, I want my actual infrastructure, my cloud resources to reflect what's checked into Git. And 100% of the time when I've gone and talked to a prospect that said, actually, we totally have controlled drift through strict policies through CI/CD. 100% of the time, 
Uh, it takes about 30 minutes, a little less, to get running with Fugue. They discover that that's not what's actually going on. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting space to work in. It's a lot of fun. For, for people who uh, have the compliance uh, orgs that are giving them a heartache uh, to prove that they're compliant, uh, I love your dashboards for compliance. Well, thanks. And we actually have put a lot of work into doing things like uh, making really useful uh, information available for SOC 2 audits or what have you. I mean, that's not very sexy, but it's really painful if you live in that world. So one of the things Fugue also does, uh, which is unique, um, every time we scan the environment, every time we examine the environment, we keep the entire state forever. So you kind of have a TiVo where you can rewind your infrastructure, including with our visualization, but also for things like compliance reports and show evidence over time of the entire set of changes uh, in a very easy to digest way, rather than having to try to reconstruct that from API calls or something like this. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask you actually, is, so is this entirely schedule driven scans or can you ingest things like CloudTrail logs for, for kind of real time detection of changes? At present, we, we do scans on intervals, and there's a reason for that. Uh, if you're familiar with CloudTrail, you'll know that uh, the length of time for something to appear in CloudTrail is highly variable. And a lot of our customers run us much faster than CloudTrail can keep up with. Five minutes, for example, if you, you might have a set of resources like your VPCs, your security groups, your IM roles, your S3 buckets that you want us enforcing really quickly if something goes out of config or notifying really quickly, CloudTrail can take 15 minutes up to over an hour to report and it's kind of random. Um, so we're looking at different event-driven services, but um, we're also talking to our customers across both AWS on Azure and Azure about uh, you know uh, what they're willing to pay the cloud service providers for those event-driven services that are lower latency. Uh, so we're, we're looking there, but at, at present, we, we do it on an interval based on the environment type. The part that I was excited about being a little more on the management side is this cloud resource visualization feature you guys have where you actually visualize the infrastructure. Um, it's a really clean look to it, which I really like. Um, this is always one of the challenges, keeping you know documentation and diagrams up to date with the current changing state of a cloud environment when it can change at any time uh, based on different things. So this is really helpful, actually. I, I'm super happy with that feature, too. Cool. I'm pleased to hear it. So if anyone wants to check out Fugue, just go to fugue.co. We can get you set up in a workshop. It usually takes 30 minutes to, to visualize your cloud infrastructure and show you any uh, policy issues you might have. Awesome. Yeah, I'll give it a try. Well, Josh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show this week. Uh, and you know your insights have been really helpful and really give a better perspective on what's happening in the Capital One situation and, and just uh, your overall inputs uh, are all around security and what's happening in the cloud. So we really do appreciate you coming and joining us. We'd love to have you again in the future. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Well, thank Thanks, you. Josh. It's been fun. And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.